Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. To the Mall and the Park where we love till tis dark. Then sparkling champagne puts an end to their reign. It quickly recovers, poor languishing lovers, makes us frolic and gay, and drowns all sorrow. But alas, we relapse again on the morrow. So that, Tom, is Sir George Etheridge's comedy, The Man of Mode, in 1676. And as you will know, that is the first mention of sparkling champagne in all literature. And champagne is very much on our minds, isn't it? It is. Both because of where we are and because of when this is going out. So it's Boxing Day, if you're listening to this when it's come out. Um, and the festive season stretches ahead. We have New Year's Eve, Hogmanay approaching. Um, and so we thought it would be fun to look at the history of um, the drinks that we particularly associate with the festive period. And Dominic, as you said, we have come to a special location so we are not talking at each other down screens are we we are literally facing each other it's and staring into actually. your gorgeous face it's it's actually tom is a lot he's 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 not as he appears on screens he's a lot <laughs> less attractive in the flesh i have to say <laughs> even more beautiful so we we've come to uh berry brothers which was set up in 1698 um, I think is an originally as a kind of general store and is you now were, you were going to say a coffee shop until you were <laughs> well, told off that, that. that is that is what the Bodleian told me but apparently <laughs> it was a general store um, and it's in the heart of St James's Clubland so uh, Dominic it's just opposite my club your club yeah which is why I'm here in a in a suit um, at, but we have a very special guest and so the reason why when you read that out you said that I would have read it too is because both of us have been reading an absolutely brilliant book on the history of alcohol, which is written by Henry Jeffries. And Henry is with us here in Berry Brothers. In fact, Henry, you suggested this as a location. Yeah, well, it's the perfect place to talk about the history of booze. And your book, Empire of Booze, I'll just read a, a, a quick couple of sentences from it. The country with the greatest influence on wine and drink in general wasn't France, Germany, or even Australia. It was Britain. 
Without the British influence, few of our favourite wines would even be in existence. And Dominic, we're a very patriotic podcast, aren't we? We're very patriotic. We're the people's podcast. But we're also very much a British podcast. And so it's absolutely brilliant, Henry, that you have given us the excuse to talk about the history of alcohol and focus it very much on on Britain. So could just begin, Dominic mentioned champagne as perhaps the kind of paradigmatic drink that, that people at Christmas use to toast the festive season. In what possible way could champagne be considered a British drink, bearing in mind that champagne is in France? Yes, it's a bit of a leap, isn't it? Um, But in order to keep bubbles in a bottle, you need a very strong bottle because the pressure is huge. And bottles previously would have been like a a decanter. So if you, they would break very, very easily. They were very um, fragile. But in 1630, a scientist, a polymath, a rogue called Sir Kenham Digby invented or probably invented a strong glass bottle. And we don't really need to go into detail about how he did We're that. We're not a glass making podcast. No, we, are, we, we, are, we are a podcast that's done the gunpowder plot, however. And so he was the son of one of the conspirators. Wasn't he, he was, yeah. His father was a, it was a Catholic conspirator. So he was sort of disgraced um, during the, the Civil War time. So he had this sort of wonderful career. Um, traveling around Europe. I think he was propositioned by Marie de, M- de Medici, or so he claimed in, in his <laughs> memoirs. But he was also a, a scientist and used to correspond with Galileo and, you know, all, all the kind of big, ni- big names at the time. And he was a founder member of the Royal Society. And he experimented with glass. And one of the things that he, he did was come up with a new type of furnace that could make glass much much stronger so he invented so when we think of a bottle which is something quite strong that can hold wine or whatever you want in it we have sir ken and digby to thank for that and then so he and other scientists at the time were experimenting with making things fizz so if you think of um wine when it ferments it fizz it fizzes and all the carbon dioxide sort of dissipates but if you can control that fermentation in a strong bottle and cork it, then the carbon dioxide gets dissolved into into the liquid. And then you open it, voila, something very similar to, to champagne. So before Cam Digby, and he develops this, wines were not fizzy. Well, wines would have been accidentally fizzy. So uh, but that have, would have been kind of spoiled. It, yeah, would, have been spoiled it would have been considered a fault. So if your, your, your barrel of champagne, which would have been a wine at the time. So it's a, a wooden barrel. Not a, a wooden not barrel. barrel. Yeah. We would Sorry. turn up and it might still be fermenting. And then it might have been shipped when it was very, very cold. It would stop fermenting. You'd, and then it might warm up in sort of March, April, and it would start fermenting again. So there'd be a, a slight fizz, what the French call pétillon, but a proper bubbles like champagne you wouldn't have been able to do that so the french if they were listening to i mean obviously we did once have millions of french listeners but (laughs) we've driven them away with our francophobia but they would say um dom perignon when they invented uh fizz in champagne isn't that their claim yes Um, but but you don't believe that's true it's it's a complete myth it was something invented by moet et chandon as as a as a marketing tool he did make champagne so when is dom perignon he's after kenan digby is is 18th century Okay, so he's so a real Johnny come lately. He was a bit of a, a Johnny, but he would have made champagne and he you know, was very important in the history of champagne. He isolated great varieties, sort of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and made very good wine, apparently, but he would have not wanted fizz. He, that would have been a fault to him. Oh, right. And all I the stuff about icy stars is a 19th century adventure. So adventure. the fizz, are we responsible for the fizz as well, the British? We are responsible for 
applying scientific rigor to making things fizzy before it would have been a very haphazard event. Yeah. Um, and in fact, it, over here, it was mainly cider makers who were doing it. So there were all these early members of the Royal Society who were West Country cider makers. I love that. Like, I, I love them by getting kind of trashed on cider in the Royal Academy. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. so unexpected. And giving and giving papers to the Royal Academy about sparkling cider whilst, whilst, whilst off their heads on 10% cider. <laughs> Um, so there was a very brief flowering in England of wine-style ciders. So this was due to a kind of war with the French. And the idea was that cider would replace imported wine. So it was a very kind of, you know, we don't need the French anymore because we've got cider. But it never really took off. So these kind of proto-champagne uh, ciders died out. But the technology then crossed the channel. And the French started doing it. And then, you know, I hate to say it, but they, they, they actually did it better. Oh, that's <laughs> and a shame. They, and they turned it into a process. They turned it into, into a sort of semi-industrial process. But the British remain kind of obsessed by champagne. Oh, I mean, yeah, we've well, always been, what, the largest market for champagne? Until very recently, we were the largest export market for champagne. And it was created for British tastes. So at one point, champagne would have been sweet. And it would have been for the Russian court, who liked everything very, very sweet. And then with the sort of rise of the middle class in England in the sort of 19th century, a taste for these gastronomic champagnes, ones that you would have with food. Um, brute dry champagne that was created for the English market. And is that in your book? I mean, you start with champagne, don't you, as we've started the podcast. And um, it, it is sort of symbolic of the general trend because you talk about, I mean, the argument is that Britain affects the booze trade because Britain is the great consumer, I guess. You have this wonderful line that, you know, a British wine merchant had access to more varieties of wine than the King of France did. Because in France, people just drank locally. They just drank. In fact, the, the French king would have probably not have had Bordeaux because Bordeaux was on a road that would have taken, it would have taken weeks to get from Bordeaux yeah. to Paris, but from Bordeaux to London would have taken, right. would have taken days. So it was... Um, you know, and, and London was the wealthiest city in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, you so. say so. So um, Britain serves as wine merchant to the world, and so in a way, it's a little bit like sport, perhaps. That um, Britain, you know, the British economy and British global reach enables Britain to set standards and to kind of export its tastes around the world, so that these drinks. I had no idea had had been shaped by British taste quite to the degree that they are. Yeah, well, they, they, these create the paradigms. The, yeah. so, so sort of champagne, sparkling wine, claret, port, and they are imitated all over the world. Uh, just one last question about champagne before we move on. You talk in the chapter about champagne's prestige, about the, the status and therefore the high cost level. Is champagne so expensive and so prestigious merely because we think it's prestigious? In other words, is it merely a meaning that we attribute to the drink and therefore its value rather than it being particularly expensive to produce or particularly rare or any of those kinds of things? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, it, it is more expensive to produce. The, the the method for making the wine fizzy, where you make a wine, you put it in a bottle, you add sugar, you cork it, and then you have to leave it for 18 months, two years, three years. So that's a very capital-intensive process. And then you do a thing where you you open the bottle, you let the the, the, the yeast out. You, so there's a sort of indu expensive industrial process um, which requires a huge amount of capital. But once these companies are set up, then I don't think, you know, it is a bit more expensive per bottle to make than a, a still wine, but not that much more. So it, it it is then so much about 
prestige and right. marketing because, and stuff. Yeah, because Henry, you, I mean, you say, you make the general point that um, the intrinsic quality of the wine often is less important than the ability to ship it to to Britain. So you mentioned Bordeaux as a kind of classic example. And I suppose another um, a wine that is particularly associated with the festive period is Claret, which comes from Bordeaux. And, and this takes us back beyond the 17th century, back to the Middle Ages, because in, you know, in the Middle Ages, Bordeaux was often directly under English rule. So is this, this is a process that is reaching right the way back to the Middle Ages. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Right, right back to the Middle Ages. Bordeaux, though, mid, sort of medieval Bordeaux would have been very different to Bordeaux that came later. It would have been very pale in colour. It would have been more like a, a very dark rosé. The, so the these way, are the kind of what the thin potations yes, that exactly, Shakespeare yes, talks about. Yes. yes. So it, um, claret is claret, which means a sort of, uh, you can still buy it in Bordeaux. It's a, it's a dark rosé. So, it would, and it would have been, it would have been like a sort of plonk, you know, you, you, it would have been shipped over and then you drank it as quickly as possible because it didn't, it would have turned to vinegar. Right. In about, in, about, in about six months. In, yeah, in, yeah. in about six months. So claret became the claret we know in the 17th century. It became a sort of totally different And is drink. that because of Kenelm Digby's bottles? I think partly to do with the bottles, but it would have been shipped in cask. So it could, could have been bottled in London, but most of the time it would have been sold in cask and there was a chap called Arnaud de Pontac from Chateau Aubriand which is a very famous Bordeaux chateau and he created this new kind of wine that would sell for two or three times the price of normal wine in in London so it would be made from very ripe grapes he'd have treated them very very carefully only picked because previously all the grapes would have gone in to make this sort of rosé wine and he just picked the the, the best of black ones to make this very dark wine aged in new barrels, be sent over to London. And this is what Pepys tried when he said it has, has a very particular taste. <laughs> but, but again, is, is this partly, it's not just about the quality of the wine, is it also about the marketing? Um, oh, no, God, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it would have been a much, much more expensive wine to make because he would have discarded grapes. He would have only used the best ones to make something not dissimilar to modern-day Bordeaux. But yes, it was it was the marketing. It was also they set up a, a tavern in the city of London. You know, it would have all been about reaching the rich customers of London. So is it 17th century, are we saying, when Claret, as we know it, basically originated 17th, 18th century? Yeah, it would have been sort of Restoration London, right. sort of time. So it's all Restoration London. It's all kind of it massive all, yeah, lads going around getting drunk on champagne and Claret and stuff. It would have been a wonderful time to be alive. You know, if, if, if the dentistry was better, it would have yeah, been. Yeah, and you didn't own a shop in the middle of the city of London, obviously. That would be bad. But with Bordeaux, it's an interesting one because um, you have wine, you have the merchants in the city. Is that right? The, 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 the people actually in the city who are often British or they're English speaking. Yeah. And then you have the producers in the, you know, in the countryside who are French. Um, now, with <laughs> Champagne, which we already talked about, a lot of the names are German. Yes, so yes, the Hyde Six and, Heide six yeah. and so on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So with Bordeaux, why is it that it didn't then go the way of Portugal, where, you know, you buy a bottle of Coburn's or Graham's or whatever? Why don't you buy a bottle of Graham's from Bordeaux? Why did the merchants, because the merchants must have lost control. Yes, well, they, they, I mean, they, they, I wouldn't say they, they lost control because a lot of them controlled the trade right up until the 1970s. You had like Nathaniel Johnston, you had the Bartons and stuff. But the, the names of the chateau 
became sort of brand names. So you'd have, you know, if you were a prosperous lawyer in 18th, 19th century Bordeaux, the Medoc, which is the famous bit where most of the wines come from. That's the left. Bank, left bank yes. yeah just north of the city and that had been drained by dutch merchants dutch um engineers in the 18th century so it's very flat and sort of gravelly and not very pretty and the, you would have these all this speculative vine planting by these lawyers with a bit of money and then they would build these ridiculous fairy tale chateau as a way of saying you know we, we yeah, so like the ones on the loire but like totally the ones on the loire, bogus but, but, but totally yeah. bogus you yeah. know almost like the ones you get in china these days yeah and these became brands. So you had, you know, you had uh, Latour and stuff are older, but like Pichon, Longueville, that sort of stuff. The, the, the pictures of the chateau became famous. Whereas in Burgundy, for example, if you, if you look at old bottles here, they'll just say, for Burgundy, they'll just say Bone, you know, just the name of the, where it comes from. Whereas with the claret, it's got the name of the chateau. So the chateau. When, when you're saying so, old bottles, you, you don't mean the kind of old bottles that Tom and I would buy. To throw out. They've got sort of 19th century bottles here at Berry Brothers. And the Bordeaux ones have the name of a specific chateau on. Right. Whereas the, um, the Burgundy ones just have the name of where it comes oh, from. Region. And then it would have been the merchant would have brought right. the wine and marketed it. So even though the merchants were very powerful in Bordeaux and used to do all kinds of weird stuff to the wine, so they would ship it in barrel and then they would beef it up with port and brandy and stuff for, for London tastes because the English were thought not to have very subtle tastes. It would then be sold by the brand name of the Chateau. So just on the English tastes, um, since you mentioned that, so with Champagne, you said that the English basically dictated the dryness of it, which yeah. is actually quite counter to our general instinct, which seems to have been British liked things very sweet and very... So in other words, presumably people looked on the British in the 18th and 19th century, much as we in the old world now look at Americans with regard to their... That's exactly they, it. They like everything over-flavoured, massively sugary, too strong, and so they've lost all kind of subtlety. I mean, that, is that true generally, British taste, would you say, in the in the sort of the the, the, uh, the early history of, of booze? Yes. No, I, I would say that's entirely true. They used to make sherry and stuff they would just fill it full of um sweet wines and things and they thought that's what they like in, in cold climates but also there was there were connoisseurs as well there were people who were there was a fashion for dry champagne so which sort yeah. of su superseded the more robust tastes that and, other english people were. and henry on the topic of fashion the other th fascinating thing that i learned was that um the taste for claret has a political dimension it does, yes, yes. No, it's um, it was a tradition. Wine would have come from France, um, and the Stuarts were aligned with with, with with the French. And then when they were deposed, you know, the Glorious Revolution, William the Third, and, and stuff, it became much harder to get hold of claret. There were lots of duty put on claret, and there's other things like uh, war with the Dutch as well, who shipped a lot of wine from Bordeaux. So people went to Portugal instead oldest ally, you know, all, all, all that kind of stuff for the wine. Um, so people who supported the Hanoverians, you know, the, the sort of people who came after William, William III would have enthusiastically drunk port, whereas the people, the, 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 the Jacobites. Oh, king over the water. Yeah, yeah, the king over the water who, who pined for the, the Stuart king would drink claret and the Scots, you know, the, would in particular would, um, would 
drink claret as a I way of the Scotstown's claret drinkers. Did you? No, know? I didn't either. Well, they, had, they, have their, they have their old alliance. You <laughs> yes, know, of course they do. Their old yeah. Yes, of course France. they do. And it was a way of saying, you know, we we don't believe in the Hanoverians. We 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 want the Stuarts back. So we're going to drink. We're going to drink right. claret. So so um, if you have got a bottle of claret, you're a Tory, uh, and if you have got a bottle of port, you have then you're a Whig. And Dominic, yes, he, ironically. <laughs> Yeah. You're a huge enthusiast for port, aren't you? I like port. You've done two episodes. So we did one on yeah. the, the Methuen Treaty. Which just, yeah. remind, just remind us what the Methuen Treaty is. So the Methuen is. Treaty is, I think, 1703, isn't it, Henry? Uh, like John Methuen, he goes to Portugal and they negotiate a treaty. And the deal basically is... So this is during... I mean, I think at the time it's the War of the Spanish Succession. I should say, actually, Tom... We are actually drinking port right now. Yes. So <laughs> if you're wondering. Very nice Graham's 30 year old. Yes. Courtesy of Henry. Very generous. Well, courtesy of Graham's. So if the, if the standard of questioning. I was about to say. The over the uh, yes. slips over then the course of the program. Why. You'll know why. So yes. The spore of the Spanish succession. Um, constant sort of trade blockages and embargoes and things with the French. Uh, Portugal is Henry, as you said, is our oldest ally. We did four episodes on Portugal. And then we did another, we've actually done five episodes on Portugal this mm-hmm. year, Tom. Yeah. Um, but the Matthew and Treaty, I think that, as I remember, the, the deal was that they would be, the duty would be a third less on Portuguese wines than it would be. And so it massively boosted the Portuguese the, the, wine the, trade. The, 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 the wine trade. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I love the story of ports because it's, it's one in which history is so. Well, obviously uppermost you know, so, the- and so you mentioned the um the, the the british merchants who settle yeah um in in northern portugal um and dominic henry in his book the empire of booze has this comment the british didn't mix with the portuguese and were mocked for their terrible grasp of the local language which even the portuguese admit is extremely hard to pronounce well tom so you're saying that to make excuses for your own very poor <laughs> well they portuguese. have a term for us um Bebardo English, which means English drunk. English drunk. Yeah. Well, let's hope nobody gets English drunk in this podcast. And Dominic, there's more. Uh, Did you see um, this chap, John Mitten, talking of English drunks? Did you see about him? Jack Mitten. John Mitten. Yeah. Yeah, I know all about him. Okay, so the prize for rowdiest rowdiest port drinker goes to a Shropshire squire called John Mitten. I know him well. Who drank between four and six bottles for most of his adult life. He once set fire to his nightshirt in order to cure hiccups. He rode a bear. It's a standard behaviour. He rode a bear, isn't he? Isn't he? Yeah, he did. He yeah. rode a bear and he took, when he went to either Oxford or Cambridge, he took 2,000 bottles of port with him. Yeah, and he didn't take a degree <laughs> and he didn't, and he left all his wine. Well, he drank, he, all, he his drank wine. all his wine. So, <laughs> so a, a, a hero, a role model. A great, a great man and a great representative <laughs> a great Shropshire of man. Shropshire, better, I would say, than Charles Darwin, Tom, who you bored everybody with uh, a few weeks ago. Um, so, Henry, listen, let's talk about port. Portuguese wine, I learned to my horror from your book, was regarded as a bit rustic and a bit rubbish until what, the 18th century? Or even then, was it regarded as a little bit down market? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, pro- the problem was is a lot of the stuff that was coming over to England would have been quite similar to, well, it would have been from the Vino Verde region, but, you know, you must have had Vino Verde, very light, light delicious white wine. Yeah. They also make a red wine, which isn't quite so it's delicious. It's too light for me, Vino Verde, if I'm completely honest with you. You're a port drinker, you know? Yeah. Um, a wig. <laughs> and, it, and it would have been transported in, in, in goat skins or pig skins or something. And it wasn't, you know, it was a local wine. It shouldn't really have been shipped. And it would arrive in England and it, and it, and it wouldn't, and it wouldn't be very nice. And sometimes they would beef it up with brandy, which probably made it even worse. Um, so something like what we think of as port is this sort of beautifully smooth, rich, didn't really exist yet. 
Um, and it was only when they started going up country where it was much, much hotter and the grapes were yet much riper. Then they would come back and well, they would buy the wine from the local growers, but it would be in a much stronger, that's the Duro, more stable the wine. The Duro, Duro, the Duro yeah. Valley. So even if you have a table wine from the Duro, it's 14, 15%, you know, thick, thick he- wine. Henry, what I also learned from your book was that the, is it the Marquis de Pombol? Oh, he's, a I think he's a bit of a friend of the show. He's a friend he? of the show. Yeah. yeah. And so very he's, robust in his He's very robust. To, yeah. He rebuilt Lisbon after the earthquake. Yeah. So he 18th the century. Bicep, very nice. Yeah. He, he's kind of the power behind the throne in the mid 18th century. Um, and that he is the person who demarcates the boundaries of the pork growing region. And that the, the French didn't do that with their, you know, their wine regions until the 1930s. You also forbade the planting of El elderflower bushes because the elderberries would be used to beef up the color of the wine which was not good so he so you weren't allowed to plant yeah. on pain of death so so a fine political leader no he was a great man yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> very very wise very, very sage <laughs> so the 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 port lodges are all still there they're, they're English names, aren't they? Sandiman's tailor. So Sandiman logo, um, he wears a Portuguese student's cloak and a Spanish sombrero. Yes. That's sort of the Don, is it? The That's don? the Don, yeah. The Don. He's still, there's still, there is a George Sandiman who, who I've met who is very, very charming, speaks Spanish, English, Portuguese, but it, the, the company's now owned by a Portuguese company, so it's not a family business anymore. But are there any of are, are, so those houses? They're what eighteenth century? Some of those, um, yeah. Actually, and are they? And are they? Are there any of them still in the family? Taylor's still has family members. Taylor Fladgate Yateman. There are still family members there. Graham's is now owned by the Symington family, who are considered the Johnny Come Latelys of. of they're they, they British. They're British. Yeah, they yeah. they come over in the nineteenth century. Oh, oh God, it's oh, <laughs> <laughs> <Parvenus. laughs> But they bought they bought Graham's in nineteen seventy, and they are you know, they are sort of a force in the industry. Right, right. So I I think uh, I think we should take a break at this point, um, charge our glasses, and then when we come back, we should look at um, the other kind of classic British influenced Hispanic. Christmas drink, which is sherry. So we'll be back with sherry. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. At Ikea, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair was $369, now $299. And the Ikea Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If I had a thousand sons, the first human principle I would teach them should be to forswear thin potations and to addict themselves to sack. That is Sir John Falstaff in Shakespeare's Henry IV plays. And we've already mentioned, Henry, that thin potations um, to Shakespeare would have been uh, the wines from Bordeaux. The sack, which Falstaff goes on and on and on about, is the drink that we call sherry. Is that right? Yes, largely. It's almost like Shakespeare was being sponsored by the sack <laughs> yeah. marketing board, isn't it? Because it's it's easily the most mentioned drink in his in his in his plays. Does that have something to do with the fact that, um, I, again, as I learned from your book, that Francis Drake sacked Cadiz and, as it were, and um, and took away a million barrels of sherry. I think that, I mean, that's, that seems a lot. It's a true story, um, but I think it was already a very popular drink. And I think that probably just made it even more popular. But I think at one point, London was awash with stolen, <laughs> stolen sherry. But, but sack wouldn't have just been sherry. Um, sack was a sort of generic term for wine. So you'd have Canary sack from the Canary Islands. Um, so it would have just been a sort of strong, sweet wine from from Spain, really. So it could have come from a lot from of Hereth. variety of places. Could be from Hereth, could be from Canary Islands. But Malaga. that's where the name comes from. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, Sherry comes from Hereth. Sack probably comes from sacar, meaning to draw out in Spanish, but no one is quite sure where the word comes from. So people were drinking sh- an ancestor of Sherry um, in the, so Shakespeare's time. So we're talking the late 16th, early 17th century, but is it is it what we would call sherry? It's not yet. Is it no. fortified? No. It wouldn't have been fortified and it would have been young as well. So sherry, as we know it, comes from aging wine for a long time and blending it in a thing called a Solera system. So you have this aged, consistent product. This would have just been wine that would have been from a vintage, would, would have been sweetened probably with raisined wine so, so d- dried berry wine so you can say that it's it's sherry simply because it comes from that region it's purely on the based on the region it, yeah it's, it's not what we would think of as sherry it, it would have been a a sort of a mixture of various wines from so, that part of the world so when does when does it start to become what we would recognize as sherry probably in the 18th century when they start blending between vintages so people start apparently it's to do with i can't remember which war it is but there are lots of stocks that just sit there in Hereth and don't get sold. And then when they are sold, people get a taste for these old wines. And so in order to, obviously there's a finite supply. So they start blending the young wines with the old wines and gradually that becomes a systematic thing. Um, yeah, they have a, Solera, a thing called a Solera, which is the, the barrels, barrels. Yeah. yeah so on top pyramid of, each of barrels. Other. A pyramid of barrels is the best way to think about it. Young wine at the top, old wine at the bottom. You take off from the bottom, you add to the top so that the wine you take off is a mixture of old and young wines, some of them very, very old. And the people who are doing this are, are British or Spanish or who's doing it? And, and in correspondence to, to whose tastes, Spanish or British tastes? Well, it w- wouldn't just be um, English taste or, or British taste. It would also be American tastes, French taste, because sherry was sort of, you know, pretty, pretty big, big all over the place. Most of the merchants were actually 
um, Spanish or there were some French ones. The uh, Domec, one of the big names was French. Lustau, another one was French. Most of them, they, they weren't that many English ones apart from there's Gonzalez Bias. And then there's who's... Oh, no, there were, there, there were some English ones. Osborne, which is when you see those bulls yes. dotted around, that's Osborne. On the Spanish but they, landscape. They, but they yeah. had been there so long that they'd become Hispanophiled, if you will. So they were Osborne. So they, that's the thing is that in, 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 in Jerez, they went native. Right. In a way that they didn't in Portugal. In, in Porto. So, so something that they have in common. Uh, well, I had always imagined before reading your book that the fortification, so the adding of, I don't know, brandy, let's say. Brandy, yeah. Um, was because of transport. Because So I had sort of read somewhere a few years ago, oh, because of the War of the Spanish Succession, blah, 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 people added, they fortified Portuguese wine and they invented port for the British. And I thought, oh, what a tremendous fact. But it sounds like from the examples of sherry and port that you give that the fortification is actually not to do with the transport or anything like that. It's to do with our debased, vulgarized, <laughs> yes, our vulgar taste. Our vulgar <laughs> tastes. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's quite hard to know exactly when and why fortification became routine. People say it's to make a, a you know a product that can travel, but then a wine if it's well made and strong enough will travel without fortification. Right. There's no need to fortify. People think, if you sort of jumping ahead to Madeira, there are letters from English merchants send, saying, send some more of that strong stuff. So apparently, in um, due to the various wars, people started distilling wine because they had too much of it. So you had brandy that they didn't really know what to do with. So they started sticking it, you know, beefing up the wine. <laughs> yeah. and I, have a, I have a theory which goes back to a podcast that we that went out a few weeks ago because we did a podcast about roast beef, didn't we, Tom? We did, yes. About, and there was always this sort of sense in the 18th century that English cooking was more robust and more simple. You know, it was kind of... Mm, honest. But it was sort of, you'd have your roast beef, but you'd have very, very strong mustard or horseradish with it, much stronger than the... Mm. Much more pungent than the more complicated, sophisticated sauces that they had in France or Italy. And I'm wondering whether people wanted very sort of robust, earthy, rich, big so drinks. You're saying sherry is John Bull, John I'm Bull's tipple. Every, yes, I'm saying if you drink port or sherry now, you can pat yourself on the back and say beef and liberty. You're a true you know, born Hurrah for Dr. Johnson. Yes. All this sort of which yeah. I do all the time anyway. Actually. I need so, to. Is that, is yeah, that possible? There might be something in there. And also you could sort of link it with the way that English people took to Indian food so much because it was just, we like big punchy spicy flavors yeah. i mean you say that that by the middle of the 19th century roughly 40 percent of the wine drunk in britain is sherry and is that is that sherry as we would that recognize would have, that it would have now? been not dissimilar to your sort of harvey's bristol cream that's so, so what that's, proportion are they drinking it i mean they, they would they would have drunk it just to sort of neat they would have had it you know like a you know you'd go to someone's house and rather than tea or coffee you might just be off because today i mean yeah, you kind of have a, oh have a sherry little cheeky sherry and then you move Tom, on to something else. Do you have a cheeky Harvey's Bristol cream every now and again? No, I have a dry sh- I have a fino. A fino, yeah. yeah. And um, what's the one that tastes like Christmas pudding? Pedro Jimenez? Yeah, Pedro oh, Jimenez. That is, that oh, that's, that, yeah. that, I mean, that's a, that's a Patriot's drink, isn't it? I like Pedro Jimenez, but yeah. uh, Henry's just laughing and not <laughs> showing the respect that I think. Uh, no, because. Uh, do you he, like Pedro Jimenez, Henry, or do you think. I, 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 find, it, I find it quite hard to drink, but in, in, in very small doses. But yeah, Pedro because in small doses, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you might have one. I mean, you have two, but you wouldn't have more than two. But you're saying that in the Victorian period, they're just knocking it back. Bring me another bottle of Pedro Jimenez. <laughs> well, they, 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 it would have been 
it would have been a, had a tiny bit of Pedro Jimenez in it. So it would okay. have been... So a, it wouldn't be the second a blended treaty. sherry with a little bit of very sweet sherry in and you would have a decanter. And just when people came over, you would yeah. offer, offer them I mean, a glass of sherry. Imagine Dickens drinking a lot of that. He I like, don't he see Dickens he, as a sherry man. He liked, he liked a, a sherry cobbler. So he liked yeah, uh, cocktails he, made from, from sherry. Sherry cobbler. Sherry cobbler. <laughs> yeah. so, so just on boozing... So we've talked before about William Pitt, the, the younger, great friend of the rest of his history. Yeah. Great foe of Napoleonic France. Yeah. And of the Jacobinism. Great generally. one for railing maps up. So we were very impressed by him as a three-bottle man, weren't we, Tom? Yeah. A man who drank three bottles of wine. But the bottles were generally smaller. They, would have been, right? they probably would have been imperial pint bottles. So they're like a pint of milk. A pint of milk, but, but, but stronger, than, you know, full, full of alcohol. Well, alcoholic milk. Right. But they probably wouldn't have been 20% like normal port. They would probably been, they may not have been fortified at all. So they might have been 15% right. dry wine. And a so, pint, a pint, you know, like, like having a pint of Australian Shiraz, perhaps. So Henry, Three when, pints of those. When, right. Also, I mean, I a, a, a contemporary of Pitt's, William Wilberforce, and you say that he, you know, he has this, He's a massive lad, hanging out with all the lads, all that kind of thing. And then he has this evangelical conversion and, and decides he's going to go off and abolish slavery. And the marker of his kind of this pledge is that he's going to be abstemious. And he writes in his journal, from now on, I'm only going to drink six glasses of wine a day. <laughs> yeah, it's so, brilliant. Very abstemious. And it sounds hilarious to us that this is kind of, you how, know, how big this is the sobriety. How big is the glass? I mean, how, how abstemious is he being in only having six glasses a day? Well, it's hard to know, isn't it? But when you look at the glasses, when you look at vintage port glasses, they're quite little. You, know, you think of Master and Commander and then yeah, yes. sort of toasting and stuff. They, you know, they, they, they would have been quite... T- so actually, that's quite abstemious, I think, if we assume that he was having little glasses of port. You know, that's okay. quite healthy. And the glasses of sherry that uh, people are having in the Victorian period? So I think of the Victorians as quite abstemious generally. No, I don't. Don't you? No, I think they're having sherry cobblers and <laughs> blind man's buff and all that. I mean, only if you're screwed in your counting house. No, I think they drank. But if you're off with Mr. Fuzzywig. Because they used to drink just, just yeah. small beer. If you lived in London, that would have been rather than water. You'd have had, you know, 3% beer. That would have just been the sort of normal thing. So beer wasn't even thought of as, as alcoholic. But they're not knocking about the gin like their 18th century predecessors. I think, I I think there was a lot of gin drinking. Yeah, all those, all those amazing gin palaces oh, you right. see around yes, London, right. they were yeah. all built by gin well, we mustn't We mustn't talk about gin because oh. I think we should save that for an entirely separate episode because it's such a, a fascinating story. But Henry, alcohol that, that hasn't kind of made it through, that has gone, you know, fallen by the wayside. And I guess the one that you, you cite as the classic example is masala, which was apparently Nelson's favourite tipple. It was, yeah. But yeah. I, I don't think I've ever drunk. Have you drunk? I'm confused whether that's the same as Malmsey. Is it? No, Malmsey is a type of Madeira. It's, Mal- it's made from Malvasia, a right. grape. Uh, masala is, w- w- was originally created as a, as a sort of Madeira substitute because Madeira was so popular that people used to make South African Madeira or Cyprus Madeira. And Masala was originally sold as, well, it was sold, there was a brand called Bronte Madeira, which was which named is, after, which, which is Nelson's, Bronte, which is Nelson's yeah. title that Nelson's he gets given, title, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So what is, so, so tell us exactly what Masala wine is and what the link is to Nelson and how and why it hasn't made it through to the present day, really. Well, Masala was, a type of wine that apparently dates back to Roman times called, or this is what they say, yeah. vino, vino perpetuo, everlasting wine. And it would be in these huge barrels called botti, um, probably terrible Italian pronunciation there. And they would just be topped up. So if you were a, a, a farmer, you'd have the, have this sort of thing. And, um, and it was a very, very strong wine that lasted. And that's what 
the English liked. And he had a merchant called John Woodhouse from Liverpool. And he came to Masala to, to, to trade. It may have been in wine, may have been in something else. And he tried the wine and thought, I can sell this as Madeira. This is, this is the stuff. So he started buying it and then he would subject it to a bit of kind of tarting up the English market. He'd add uh, grape must, you know, um, to sweeten it. So it was more to English tastes. And then Nelson, who was hanging around the Bay of Naples yeah, with, with um, Lady Hamilton, Lady, Lady Hamilton yeah. getting up to all sorts. Yeah. And he visited and he tried the wine and became quite good friends with, with Woodhouse. And he loved the wine and said that it, you know, it should be supplied by the Royal Navy, supplied to the Royal Navy for, for officers. So he started buying wine from Woodhouse, what the Royal Navy started buying for, for Woodhouse. And it became a, you know, the, the drink that was what officers drank in the Navy. And it was just a sort of strong Madeira or Sherry style sweet wine and then other english merchants came out there was sort of inghams and whitakers and stuff and there was this sort of brief golden age like sort of dallas or something but <laughs> but of wine in palermo in the 19th century and they had balls and it was like it was like the leopard and they all yeah you know they had, had these huge palazzos and and if you go to masala today there's only one producer left now in Masala um, on the front uh, Fl- florio who was italian from calabria but you see the ruined Ingham and Woodhouse Balios. Yeah. And, and they are massive. Yeah. And it's like two miles of harbour. How sad. With these ruined masala, essentially masala warehouses. But what went wrong? Where sherry lasted and port and Madeira has lasted, actually, yeah. hasn't it? But, Just but- about. Um, it was because they went, there was a race to the bottom. So the wines sort of went, went a bit out of fashion. Mm. Um, whereas sherry and Madeira managed to keep their quality levels up even though that sales were declining um you know harvey's bristol cream you might mock it but it's a it's a pretty solid product whereas in masala they started doing ones that were mixed with eggs or flavored with almonds or vanilla yeah and it became something that people just used for cooking so there's yeah. lots of italian american so, dishes so so is it possible uh, is anyone making masala of the kind that nelson would have drunk i mean then, is it possible to experience what nelson drunk it is, yes. Now, I was very fortunate enough to stay at a hotel owned by a sort of masala historian who goes around buying up rare casks of masala, and he has them all in his cellar. And he took me down there and gave me some to try. And these would have been a taste of the wines as they would have been before they were you know, sweetened up and, for the, for the British it, market. did it fill you with a zeal for king and country after you drunk it? Um, it's, it's certainly, they were certainly wonderful wines. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't quite say this. <laughs> you have a yearning to go to sea. <laughs> so on the, on the issue of, of old wines, how far back can we, can we drink wine and think that we're drinking what people drank at the time? So in other words, there must be wines around from, I don't know, mid 19th century or something. If, if I were to open one now and drink it, could I reasonably say, oh, I'm drinking what? dickens would have tasted let's say or is it would it have changed so much in the interim that it wouldn't be remotely what dickens would have tasted i mean the only wine that would that would have that would last that long there's a few but madeira is the one and berry brothers i think they still sell a lot of very very old madeiras dating back to the 19th century God, i'm quite tempted to buy one where you, where you i mean they're not as expensive as you think so how much i mean how expensive? You know, sort of 500 pounds a oh, bottle God, that is expensive for, you know. okay but, but considering, <laughs> considering some of them are sort of 150 but, years old but henry i should mention at this point that in your book you offer wines that you can buy that are not extortionate that correspond to how you think 
various drinks would have tasted um and i've actually uh, i bought some of your recommendations i bought two of your recommendations in the sherry chapter for sadie my wife and so this is going out on boxing day so by this this time dear listeners we will know whether sadie oh, enjoyed her enjoyed her present so you're not. saying lustau lustau if you buy lustau sherry or lustau um old india sherry old east india sherry is, yeah. is meant to be a recreation of a sweet style of sherry that would have traveled around the world on east india men and the, the thing about sherry and particularly madeira is that they were very very robust and if they, when they went through the tropics, when it got very hot, most wines would be, you know, absolutely ruined. But yeah. certain types of sherry, and in particular Madeira, actually improved. And one of them was, one of the sherries was um, Lustau Old India. And by and large, just before we move on, have our tastes, if we went back in time, if the three of us journeyed back to 1850 or 1750. What fun that would be. <laughs> what fun that would be indeed. But would the, the wine or the, the alcohol generally be much sweeter than we're used to now do you think it would be sweeter and it would be less fresh because all the sort of when we drink wine we're used to having those wonderful fresh berry flavors like you get with a sauvignon blanc or a pinot grigio which almost all owe their all the flavors to temperature controlled fermentation so if you can keep the, the temperature down when when the wine is fermenting you get all those fruit flavors but in, in the old days you didn't have that so in spain and portugal and stuff it would get very hot when it fermented so you wouldn't get those pure fruit flavors and people didn't understand quite as well as we do what oxygen does to a wine so what you you the wines would all be slightly oxidized Right. Well, not all of them, but your sherries, Madeiras and stuff. So you'd, you, you, the wines would be sort of nuttier and less fresh. So, Henry, one last drink, because um, we've been mainly talking about kind of festive Christmassy drinks, but of course we've got New Year's Eve coming up and the paradigmatic drink, particularly if you're in Scotland, that you drink at New Year's Eve is whiskey. Um, except Dominic is pulling a face. Do people drink whiskey? On New- Do you drink whiskey on New Year's Eve, Henry? No. Yes. Someone's making this claim, I and I just know it's, 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 I have always drunk whiskey in New Year's Eve. Have I, you? Yeah, I thought yeah, you're that was maybe, a thing. You're maybe not the norm. Well, maybe I'm not, but it's my custom, <laughs> and right, it's, it's half podcast, my podcast, half, podcast, half my podcast. So I'm going to insist on it. So um, Henry, whiskey. All the other drinks we've been talking about have come from the sun-kissed Mediterranean. Whiskey very much doesn't. Um, where does it come from? How come it gets made? How does it end up? becoming as popular as it has done yeah it's I mean, it's less different to the other ones than, than than it might at first seem because all the other ones were created for basically english tastes and whiskey as we know it until very recently was the same was created for english tastes not so english tastes. not british no, no 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 the scots were making whiskey for, for an awful long time but it was something that stayed in scotland most of it would be made illegally you had these malt whiskies they would be very different to what we know as whiskey today. They'd be very strongly flavoured, but they wouldn't have been aged. So they would have been almost like a sort of very strongly flavoured vodka. They'd be like a sort of moonshine. And they've generally stayed in Scotland. And occasionally English people would go north of the border and they would try them and they would... Well, you, you have this brilliant description of that. In the literature of the Georgian and early Victorian period, it's apparent that drinking whiskey while in Scotland was the modern day equivalent of licking hallucinogenic toads while in the Amazon... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, how, how our Scottish listeners will react to three Englishmen oh, shortly yeah. at that? I don't yeah. know. Uh, yeah, they love it, Tom. <laughs> they can't get enough of that. I'm going to be in trouble for this one. But um, 
So it was it was not something that really left Scotland or or, or even left the Highlands. These sort of proto malt whiskies, right? Because because Burns describes Lowland whiskey as the most rascally liquor, which it was an industrial product. Yeah, um, and you know English people did try them, and they you know they did come south a bit, but it was merchants in. Glasgow, Aberdeen, Kilmarnock, like Shivers Brothers, Johnny Walker. So who's Johnny Walker? Is he a bloke? He, he, John is, Walker, is he someone John real? Walker of Kilmarnock. He was a he was a, a shopkeeper, tea merchant, wow. and coffee. So not dissimilar to to, to, to Berry Brothers, right? And so what they would do is they would buy Highland whiskies, which were the high quality ones, and they would buy Lowland whiskies, which were the lighter, not so good quality ones. And they also sold ports, Madeira rum so they would have loads of barrels lying around so they would store it in these barrels and it was discovered that the thyme and the leftover wine in the barrels turned this sort of quite you know this colorless liquid which had a lot of flavor but wasn't particularly sophisticated into something sublime and then they would they would create a consistent product which they would market under brand name like john walker bells shivers brothers um, but south of the border in England, they drank brandy, they drank cognac, um, and that's what you would have when you were at your gentleman's club. You'd have a, a brandy and soda or, or just a, a neat brandy. But then there was phylloxera, which was a an, an aphid. Yes, destroyed, it's always wiping out the, the vines, isn't exactly, it, in Bordeaux and so destroyed on. destroyed yeah. the vines in cognac, and there was no cognac to be had. So there was a sort of panic in the gentleman's clubs of St. James's. So the sort of canny Scots merchants decided they were going to create blends for the London market. So the the, the Scottish blends would have been, you know, robust, powerful, peaty whiskies that were often drunk with honey in in sort of toddies. Whereas the English, they wanted lighter whiskies that they could mix with soda for drinking in their gentlemen's clubs. So the Scottish merchants created whiskies for the London market, which were close in flavour profile to cognac. Crikey. So soda, you'd have whiskey and soda. That's, I mean, people do drink whiskey and soda or brandy and soda, don't they? My, my grandmother's favourite drink. But soda has gone out of, completely gone out of fashion, hasn't it? They're trying to bring it back. So they now call them highballs and right. the, the um, sort of bar keeping fraternity and are trying to bring them back. I mean, Henry, to, uh, Scottish whiskey is seen as kind of the brand leader. It's the champagne of whiskies. Is, would that be, I mean, that's my perspective. Um, yeah, I, th- I would say that's, you know, and especially to do with the marketing as well, because the champagne has been so brilliantly marketed yeah. and the and same so Scotch whiskey. And so it's seen as part of that kind of Celts, Brigadoon, you know, all that kind of stuff, the kind of comedy Scottish. That sort of Walter the, Scott. Walter Scott. Scottish. Mel Gibson. Gibson. <laughs> or, or not Mel Gibson. <laughs> Last the kind of stuff that gets flogged on on tourist shops in, in uh, you know, Princess Street in Edinburgh. Um how does that come about? How does it get come to be a, this this kind of moonshine end up coming to be marketed as part of Scotland in the way that it has done? Well, it was just it was just a way of selling it. It was it was all so they sold, simple they sold, as that. They sold it's, it's it on they sold, advertising. They sold it on Brand Scotland. There's that yeah. thing when George the Fourth visited and he all got decked out in tartan. Yeah, and it was all stage managed by by Walter Scott. This sort of you know, and this and the and the sort of the cult of the Highland regiments, you know, being you know, and the royal family going to Balmoral, Scottishness was sort of in. But what about Irish whiskey? Because the Irish are also making lots of whiskey, aren't they? Yes, Irish whiskey was was was, was different because it was it was generally more robustly flavoured, and it was very very popular until it was actually more popular than Scotch whiskey until 
the late 19th century. So what happens? Uh, it was it was pushed out, well, there's various reasons, but basically the new blended Scotch whiskies, these sort of light, fruity whiskey and soda whiskies, just pushed the Irish stuff out. And the Irish stuff was seen as rather old-fashioned. It wasn't as well marketed. It wasn't as smooth. Or you know, this was how it was perceived. But at one point, Dublin was the whiskey capital of the world. Mm. You know, there were four huge distilleries. And talking of inferior whiskies, what's your what's your perspective for uh, American whiskey? Ooh, well, um, American whiskey is just very different because it's made out of American grains, like corn and well, r- r- rye is not strictly American, but it grows very well in America. So it's I actually quite like American whiskey in a cocktail. So, a cocktail. If I, yeah, so if I'm having a, a Manhattan or an old right. fashioned or something, you know, a nice bourbon or but rye. But you wouldn't drink it on its own. I might, yeah. Well, I used to see whiskey's my day job, so I have to. I have to keep. Oh, God, you're just keeping in with the yeah, big. I, I have to keep Catholic, big whiskey. Yeah, I have to keep, keep, <laughs> big keep, bourbon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> see, when we turn, I'm sure when we turn the microphones off, Henry will cut loose <laughs> and tell us what he really thinks of American drinks. Well, um, but, but, but America has has basically replaced Britain now it has as the yeah, arbiter no, of global drinks taste. I guess. Well, is that so? Is that the process? Then you know, are we into a new phase? In other words, so much of what you you've talked about today and what you talk about in your book empire of booze is about french italian spanish producers creating products for this big rich british market and, and that defining the products is that now happening with the united states so or, wine or with being, china or with china yeah so wine being produced and the, the style of wine or the style of spirits changing to match those new markets yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think with America, it's already happened. So I think yeah, because I, the cocktail bars, the American I think, bar, and, I think with co- and so cocktail on, bars. Yeah. So the, all that sort of you know jazz age cocktails, the, the Savoy, all that stuff. That was all America, but also Americans did change how wine, especially how Bordeaux was made. So there was slightly going off topic. There's a very famous American wine critic called Robert Parker who liked big wines, yeah. and the p- producers in Bordeaux beefed up their wines to a or perhaps they were changing anyway because of the climate but but there was also that is it the judgment of paris 1976 i think when yeah. they american wines beat the french wines and that seems great exactly transition yeah. from but i think all that's new. already happened so i think the american influence is already waning and what comes after that is, is it chinese yeah, well, chinese i think, I think in some senses it is because a lot of whiskey companies are making whiskies aimed at the Chinese yeah. market. But I'm not sure if it's about the flavour, it's more about the marketing and the packaging. Or is it, is it I mean, is there a kind of glo- a, a, a kind of alcohol equivalent of global English where the distinctiveness tends to be blurred because that way you can sell it to every conceivable market? No, I, I think you're right. And everyone now makes whiskey. So you can make, get very nice whiskey that's made in Kent, made in Taiwan, made mm. in Japan, made in China. And it's all, most of it has the Scotch template. So it will be made often by Scottish engineers using Scottish equipment and Scottish techniques, but in Taiwan. Or- so Henry, before we finish, if you could recommend for listeners one drink that would take them back to the 17th or the 18th or the 19th century that they could use to see in the new year, what would you recommend that they get? Oh, well, I, I, I just like a nice glass of port like we're having now. I know it, it's not, uh, not... So not, any particular brand? Well, we're drinking a Graham's 30-year-old at the moment, which is aged in wood. It's a tawny port. It's, and so this is what, the taste of the 18th century? This would have been, um, well, I don't know, perhaps not, perhaps later, perhaps taste of the 19th century. Okay, well... So 19th century Portugal, Tom. See in... Fardo. Yeah, see in the... Ni- yeah. yeah, political coups, revolutions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What could be more fun? But no, but this would be drunk in a Victorian parlour, right? I mean, this is... 
Yeah, you, or you, in England. Yeah. You could be drinking this and chatting to Anthony Trollope. And, and then playing Blind Man's Buff. Skittles, the, uh, mm, the mistress of the Duke of Cambridge. Yes, has skin-tight riding habit. And General Gordon. Yeah. Um, what, could, what, what could be more fun than that? That's my dream <laughs> New Year combination. <laughs> okay, well, um, Henry, thanks so much. Your book, Empire of Booze, is really, really brilliant. If you have any interest in drink or history or drink in history, absolutely unmissable. And you've got a new book coming out next year, is that right? Next On um, uh, Vines in a Cold Climate, which is about English wine. And so that was my first ever job was in an English winery. So I shall definitely be buying that. Um, And we wish you all a very happy new year. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.